0: Welcome to the Days for Girls podcast, a show about breaking barriers for women and girls around the world. I'm your host, Jessica Williams, Chief Communications Officer at Days for Girls International. At Days for Girls, we believe in a world where periods are never a problem. We are on a mission to shatter the stigma and limitations associated with menstruation by increasing access to sustainable period products and menstrual health education For all people with periods. Today's episode is with Anita Diamant. Anita is the author of 13 books. Period, end of sentence is her most recent, inspired by the Oscar-winning documentary produced by Melissa Burton, who, by the way, was also recently interviewed on the Days for Girls podcast in episode 28. In the book, Period in Ascendance, she mentions Days for Girls and features a quote from our CEO and founder, Celeste Murgens. Anita's first novel, a New York Times bestseller, is called The Red Tent and has been published in more than 25 countries around the world. It is the winner of the 2001 BookSense Book of the Year Award, and it was adapted into a two-part miniseries by Lifetime TV. Anita's other bestselling novels include The Boston Girl, Day After Night, the last days of Dogtown and Good Harbor. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. Period End of Sentence offers a wonderful comprehensive overview of the issue of period poverty and how we go about ending it for every girl everywhere. Now let's go on to the show you have this great quote I love. So I thought I would share it with everyone and use that as a jumping off point to talk about what inspired you to join your fight for, for menstrual equity. And, and you say in, at the very beginning of this chapter, if the famous arc of justice is moving to abolish all obstacles that keep human beings from the pursuit of happiness, then menstrual justice has to be part of that great and worthy goal for everyone and everybody. So just that just gives me chills it's fantastic so for you what what inspired you to join the fight for menstrual justice
1: well 1st let's give uh credit to uh that that quote about uh, the arc of uh, justice is much quoted by um of Dr Martin Luther King um although i think he got it from somewhere else too so um but it's a wonderful wonderful image i um i have written about women's health women's bodies women's uh Lives have centered women at, in the middle of everything that I've written pretty much through my my career in journalism and in fiction, and even in some of the nonfiction books I've written. Uh, and so I had written, I think I'd written like an op ed about menstrual justice uh, in the fall of, you know, years just mushed together. Um, and uh, it was responding to stories about women being sequestered in rural Nepal and dying uh, out in sheds and huts because it was cold and animals attacked them. And the reason they were out there was their families believed that sleeping under the same roof as a menstruating woman would be a source of illness and perhaps even death for people in their own homes. So that was kind of shocking. It was on the front page of the New York Times, three stories within the course of one year. And at the same time, I read a story locally about a high school student who had written an op-ed in her high school newspaper uh, demanding that there be period products in all of the bathrooms in her high school. And that op-ed caught the that op-ed caught the eye of a local uh, city council member who brought it before the city council. And Brookline became, I believe, the first municipality to mandate menstrual products in all municipal bathrooms. So these two. Poles of terrible, uh, loss and, and shame and loss of life. And on the other end, a young woman, a very young woman uh, voicing her passionate belief that women should be treated like human beings and that shifted things for a whole community. So those two things made me think about menstrual justice. Then, um, I watched the Academy Awards in 2019 and saw the Period End of Sentence crew win for Best Documentary Short. And I was so inspired. I, I got up off the couch and, and applauded. Uh, and uh, the next day, I watched the film Period End of Sentence, which was created by The Pad Project. And um, I, I thought it was fabulous. And then a week later, or so, I got a phone call from my agent asking, would I be interested in talking to the PAD Project about a book that would be inspired and connected to their film? And so here I am, (laughs) a couple of years later, uh, having learned so much about menstrual injustice and the battle for menstrual justice, and, and documented it in a way that I hope will reach a really broad audience of people to Make them aware of this issue and enroll them in the fight for menstrual justice.
0: Well, your book does a fantastic job at that. It is, you know, it's not a thick book. It's it's for those listening. It's I, I felt like a super easy read. It gives you a really broad overview of the issues. And uh, I just got to say, I remember that moment when <laughs> period end of sentence one. I was also watching that on my couch and. And how cool that was! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the, you know, the
1: director pl- held it up and said, "I can't believe a movie about menstruation just won an Oscar." And uh, and the backstory is that they didn't think they were they had heard this, the the uh, the group that made the movie, pa- the Pad Project, is located in uh, in Los Angeles and with connections to the movie industry. And there was you know scuttlebutt that there would never that the guys it's, it's still largely a white male and senior. Uh, uh, academy of of people would never in a million years vote for this movie and yet miracle happened and it did win and it gave it a huge platform um and people all around the world watched it and a lot of people had never thought about this before and boom and that's the power of media
0: mm-hmm. it it really is amazing yeah um so melissa burton is coming on the days for girls podcast in a few weeks and i'm curious. Why? Why they reached out to you? You said you've been writing a bit about it, um, but can you unpack that a little bit more?
1: <laughs> well, the reason they reached out to me is because of the Red Tent, <laughs> really, um, which is the first novel I wrote, which was published in 1997, um, which uh, tells a story of a small story barely that barely registers in um, in the Book of Genesis about a character named Dina, and. In trying to imagine that world, a very different kind of world, I imagined that women gathered together during their menstrual cycle in a, what I call a red tent and um, took care of one another. It's where women also gave birth um, and nursed the sick, nursed women sick, and uh, and it was a place of not of um, banishment or sequestration, but of of celebration, of healing, and of community among the women. Uh, I made that up, I thought. Um, that was an invention because um, based on one sentence in, in, um, in somewhere, it's not in Nampian in Genesis. No, I think it's later, um, that women after uh, giving birth to a son were um, set apart from the community for 30 days, and women when they gave birth to a daughter were set apart for 60 days. And I heard a lecture once, and the lecturer said, perhaps the reason women were separated for 60 days when they gave birth to a daughter was not as punishment, but at to honor the fact they had just given birth to another birth giver. And that kind of made me think about, about biblical stories in a whole different way, to think about it, not from the given uh, lenses through which we see things, but to imagine what that world would have been like, if indeed giving birth to a birth giver was a source of uh, pride, honor, and respect. So that's where all of that came from. The Red Tent was very successful. It it continues to sell. It's a bestseller. And that story of women's empowerment um, in a world that I imagined, as I imagined it, uh, was something that became a bit of a, um, I guess we call it a meme now. Um, there are um, groups called the Red Tent. There are book groups called the Red Tent. There are businesses called the Red Tent. There's actually kind of a Red Tent movement. Um, and the title is about women gathering um, to support one another and, uh, and to strengthen one another. I don't think it has as much to do with menstruation. But in the book, the menstrual tent is the Red Tent.
0: Mm, yeah, I... I also, you know, found something really interesting, (laughs) Um, and I'm just I'm making this connection. You know, I did some research about your book, The Boston Girl, which Mm -hmm. that that came out before the Red Tent. Is that right? Oh no,
1: no, okay, was ninety seven. That the the, Boston Girl is my most recent book. It was published in two thousand and I don't remember, but um, a while ago. But it's no, that's my most recent novel. Okay, Red Tent was the first novel.
0: Okay, awesome. Well, you know. The Boston Girl is about a woman named Addie who joins the Rockport Lodge, which is a a vacation spot for poor and immigrant Mm -hmm. girls. And they get the opportunity when they go there to do things that are out of the norm, like new opportunities and new experiences. And and she is this. This is written during the flu epidemic and World War One and the Depression. Mm -hmm. Um, you know of that era. And I just found it really interesting that you know when you were writing this book, period, end of sentence, you were literally living through a pandemic yourself. And <laughs> yes. I was like, isn't that funny that you wrote that? <laughs> I don't know. I was just curious. Like, did you did you ever imagine that you would someday be like somehow kind of living this parallel thing happening? Not, uh, <laughs>
1: not, none of us imagined this, but no, I, what I learned about the, um, the flu epidemic of 1918 um, sort of echoed through my mind and my experience when i was as i lived through this through the, as we've lived through this pandemic so and the same kind of um people ignoring the warning signs um and uh, and of course the incredible amount of death mostly of young people that the the flu epidemics in uh in the in 1918 killed the young in overwhelming numbers which was very different and but then nobody spoke about it Um, it became Mm. kind of this unspoken trauma Mm. for generations.
0: Mm. Interesting. Mm. So um, you, you really, like you go through the book, I mean, you cover everything from, you know, uh, how menstrual, you know, menstrual health for the disabled people of color, you, you talk about, you know, policy and, and business and you, you know, stigma and period products. And I mean, you really, really do a great job of, doing this comprehensive overview. Um, you even talk about like, you know, climate change and the effects of like, you know, disposable products on mother Mm -hmm. earth. Um, and by the end you, what I really loved is you, you kind of focused on how this research has changed you. And, um, you say, um, and and I'm going to quote you here. You say, in fact, Every public conversation about periods, whether it's menstrual leave, stigma, or access to period products is really a conversation about power. And I thought we could take, like, go into that a little bit. Can you kind of unveil what you mean by that? Um, Well, I
1: think it goes back to me to the word curse. Curse. Um, that that periods have been called for a very long time, the curse, not a curse. Everyone knows curse. There are all kinds of curses, but the curse is menstruation. And that means uh, implicitly that those who menstruate are cursed, which means they're dangerous. Um, there's something wrong with them. They are less than those who don't have this curse. And that, um, and that is reflected in, in the way that menstruators, women in particular, have been relatively powerless in most of our, in most civilizations and that they have less power, we have less power than men. Um, And that has been the order of things. So when you talk about menstruation openly without shame and you turn and you make fun of this idea that it's a curse also, I think humor is very powerful. um, You start to dismantle in a very subtle way, but in also kind of a very concrete way too. I mean, we're talking about walking around with our tampons without hiding we are talking about um, undermining the idea that this is a curse um, and that we are cursed, that we are less than, and that, um, that there is no reason for us to have less power because of the way our bodies are, are created. So that's that's my view of how it's a discussion about power because you're really talking about, um, well, well. I, b- I believe in using the word menstruator. Um, I think um, menstruation is gendered. We can't get away from that. And um, women have been treated as less than, have been treated as children, has been treat- have been treated as chattel through, um, through most of history, although not in every single civilization or culture, which I was delighted to find out about.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember when I first came to Days for Girls, um, this was all new to me. And I'm, I was almost 40 years old when I, when I came on board. And i had been working for 5 years doing uh you know live events and trainings and and coaching women in business and leadership and and really considering myself a feminist and uh this concept of menstrual inequity menstrual shame stigma um I didn't realize that I think back then that it was at it really does at times seems like it was at the root of inequality, uh, or gender inequality. And I'm, I'm curious if, if you think about that, what, how you feel about it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, um, and when I started, when I started writing a book and people said, are you working on something new? And I, and, um, when if it was a man asking me this, I would sort of hem and haw and say, well, I'm not sure you want to hear about this, but I'm writing that book about menstruation. And I realized I was kind of like shuffling my feet and being embarrassed. And I, I stopped doing that. And there there have been a lot of moments like when you hit your forehead and you go, Duh, of course, um, working on this book. Um, and that and I think that for a lot of people, that moment is when you say there should be period products the way there are there is toilet paper in every bathroom in public. And people go women and women of all ages go, of course. Why didn't I think of that? Why why isn't that obvious? Why wasn't it obvious to me throughout my life? And I, I think that speaks to the way we've just been cult- acculturated to believe that we need to hide this, that it's um, that it is in some way, although maybe we won't use the word shameful, but it's embarrassing. Uh, it's unclean. Um there are beliefs about that you smell when you have your period that, um, some people I know still have heard from their great grandmothers or their grandmothers that if you take a shower while you're having your period, you'll never have a baby. Um, I just heard that the other day from a a friend of mine that her, her grandmother told her that that was what she was told. All of this stuff is, um, way, way down in our subconscious, I think, but it's been brought up to the surface. Um, and, the thing is, this has happened before. In the 70s, there was a book about menstruation. It was sort of groundbreaking. And they said, oh, you know, now we've broken the silence and things are going to change. And that was in 1974. But things are really changing now. They are really changing now. Don't you think?
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was just talking to some legislators in Washington State and California. And I mean, they're making period products free in all, um, you know, sc- with public school systems. And I, I think that's a step in the right direction, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously I wish things would change more quickly. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, it's, and of
1: course we know products are just part of this, but products are a way to get into this deeper conversation as well. You need to, girls need to have, um, products in the bathrooms at school. I mean, girls are, and it's, you know, people think, well, they miss school, but you know, if you're, if you don't have enough and you're in class, how can you concentrate? Right. Mm -hmm. It undermines, it undermines your confidence. It undermines your concentration. Uh, So it's, it's, it's a very insidious and in some, and sometimes very subtle uh, problem. In other cases, it's not subtle at all. Um, It's in fact, life-threatening, but Mm -hmm. um, for us in the United States, I think, uh, I think
0: we need to recognize how pervasive and unfair it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the areas that you touch on is how, how bad it is for incarcerated women, oh. women in prisons. Mm-hmm. And I, I even personally don't think I realized what they go through to get access to periods by so, so since I don't think this gets enough attention, I was hoping maybe you could just tell us more about what you learned about that and what you write about in your book.
1: Yeah. It's really shocking. Uh, and, um, there, uh, there are, thanks to the work of women who have been incarcerated, who have written about this and, and brought lawsuits against, um, against the parties that are responsible, women in prison, in many instances, have been denied period products um, or given almost no- next to nothing, like two pads for a month, of you know, for, or that, uh, that in one case, I think it was there were two women in a cell and they were given 20 pads between the two of them for a month. And we're not talking about the pads you buy in the supermarket. We're talking about really thin garbage. Um, they are sold in the commissaries and at prices that are way inflated. That are if you're incarcerated, it's quite likely you can't afford that, and you have to make a choice between calling home or buying a period product. Um, and if you bleed through your clothes in some in some places, you are you get demerits. You get punished because you don't have a way to take care of yourself. And then you soil your uniform and then you're in more trouble. And in some really horrible cases, and I'm afraid it's not all that rare, prison guards have used period products um, as a a way of of forcing women to perform sex acts in exchange for what they needed to maintain their periods. And it sounds unbelievably grotesque but it's not uncommon, hasn't been uncommon. And one of the saddest things I learned was that passing laws from on high, there's like a federal law that mandates period products in federal prisons, which sort of lets out state prisons, but mandating it that there should be made available doesn't mean that it's interpreted as there should be free products in prisons and women should have free access to them. There's still There are a lot of there are a lot of uh, places where that law sits on the books, but it is not enacted in a way that actually allows women their dignity. Mm. So it's a really it's a real nightmare situation for people and for homeless people who are menstruating. And, uh, you know, there was that and this is in the book too that awful um, situation at the border when so many young people were put in cages uh, and um, there was a story about a young girl who had bled through her clothes and had to sit in it um, for a very long time before she was allowed to have a change of clothing, be allowed to take a shower. And I think that hits such a nerve that I, I feel like I read that story over and over again um, by women reporters who immediately understood what an outrage that was and how, haven't all of we? Haven't all of us had some moment of panic uh, and of not being able to take care of ourselves? Not because it should be such a big deal; it happens. But in the culture we live in, it is like one of the th- worst things that can happen to you, especially if you're a teenager, right? So mm-hmm. it's all woven together in a in a kind of nasty web <laughs> that mm-hmm. is being slowly picked apart. Um, thanks to the efforts of Days for Girls and other, the PAD project, and especially by young young women, young adult, and I'm talking junior high school students as well as high school students and college students who just are not going to take
0: it. And mm-hmm.
1: I'm so inspired
0: by them. I really am.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I do love uh, th- th- that is a very helpful message in your book because um you know, you do talk a lot about the younger generation and how they just, yeah, they're just not going to stand for this. <laughs> and they yeah. they and in some ways they feel emboldened not to have that that shame or stigma and, yes. and talk more freely about it. Right. It's it's wonderful. And I, you know, I I don't know exactly why.
1: My hunch is that they have grown up in a world where not only their older sisters and their mothers, but their grandmothers are feminists on some level. And so and they've grown up listening to the news, and they've grown up listening to me too. I just read a, a piece by a thirteen-year-old girl talking about how she un- how she understood things that happened to her in her in her grade school as me too moments. This is a thirteen-year-old with that kind of analysis, so that doesn't come from the from thin air. It it is in the atmosphere, and it has been absorbed by a great many a great many young women of all backgrounds, of all races, of all classes. In South, there's stories like this in South Africa, all over India. In Nepal, uh, in in Ireland, Scotland, there are examples of this around the world.
0: Yeah, well, Anita, I have to thank you for for writing period Innocence, of sentence the book because um, it really does a great job of, of looking at the issue. And I'm certainly going to recommend it to everybody because um, you know who wants to know more about uh, menstrual uh, menstrual equity and period poverty and all of those things. Uh, if people want to get a hold of the book. Uh, where can they find it? Everywhere. <laughs> it's in <laughs> bookstores. Uh, if you can support an independent bookstore, we always would love
1: for you to buy it from an independent bookstore, but it's available, of course, online. Uh, it's available. It's an audio book um, and you can download it. So there are lots of ways to to read it. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it is a quick read. It's really intended to introduce the the whole range of issues, as you've said so nicely that fall under the category of menstrual injustice and the fight
0: for menstrual justice, which is, uh, happening all over the world, all of the time. And if people want to connect with you personally, where can they go? Uh, I have a website,
1: of course, Anita com. And, uh, you know, we're no longer in a time when there's a lot of book, (laughs) book events. Um, but I've been talking to people a lot and I'm not, I'm not coming to a bookstore near you anytime soon. (laughs) Um, thanks to the pandemic, but, um, but there are uh, online interviews and and other kinds of, of uh, events that have been recorded, so you can watch that if you like to. But AnitaDiamond.com and great. Twitter <laughs> <laughs>
0: and author Anita Diamond Facebook, right? That's awesome. Yeah. We'll put the links in the show notes for everyone to find. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anita, I, I, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really oh, great. Oh, I'm delighted.
1: To you. And I, and again, um, it's it's I got to talk to. Um, to Ms. Mergens when I was doing the book and she was an incredibly generous interview and she was very helpful and inspiring too. It's um, Days for Girls is inspiring in the way it's grown and changed over time. It's one of the things I respect so much about
0: it. The Days for Girls podcast is produced by Days for Girls International. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit daysforgirls.org forward slash podcast. If you'd like to support the work we do on the show, leave a rating or a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to the show and share episodes on social media or with your friends. To learn more about Days for Girls and to join our global movement, please visit daysforgirls.org. Thank you for listening. See you next time.